You know, years ago, I heard a, a story of two individuals who were, they both worked the same job, and their job was to, to cut wood. They both arrived at the exact same time every morning. They both had the same quota for how much wood that they were to be chopping. And every day, they, they worked along in the morning. They, they worked side by side together. At roughly about noon, one of the men would, would leave the premises for about two hours while the other man decided he was just going to keep on working. He wanted to get his quota in, and so he, he pressed on with that. But every day, the man who left for two hours, he would return, and, and he would end up getting his quota in a full hour and a half before the other man who kept on working throughout the whole day. And this, this man, he, he would see this other man who, who took two hours off from, from cutting this wood, from chopping this wood, and he would see him every day getting fit, done with his quota an hour and a half early, and it would bother him so much. Finally, he got to the point where he said, okay, I got to know what's going on here. He asked the man, hey, what, what's the deal here? Every day we start at the same time and we work together and then you take off for two hours while I keep working and yet every day you still manage to chop more wood faster than me. What is going on here? Well, the man replied, you know, the two hours that I'm gone, I'm not taking a break. I'm sharpening my axe. What I hope will be accomplished over the next several weeks is that we will have a collective sharpening of our collective acts here over the next several weeks. As you know, it is our habit here to walk through portions of Scripture chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and I would estimate upwards of 95% of the sermons that I've ever preached would fit into that category. That This is just the, the, the method that I believe is, is most biblically faithful And yet, every now and again, it is helpful to take breaks from that in order to focus our attention on particular topics that will help us as a church body. And this is one of those occasions. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have all been given a task. As individuals who identify as being part of Pillar Fellowship, we have a mission that we desire to see accomplished. In order to accomplish those purposes, in order to perform our duty to our Lord, we must have a clear conception of what it is that we are to be doing. We must have a clear definition of what we are seeking to build, and we must have a sharp axe as we step forward in this walk of faith together. So over the next five weeks or so, we are going to walk through a series on biblical ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is a word formed by combining two Greek words together. There's the word ekklesia, which means church, and then there's the word ology, meaning the study of. You put them together, we have the study of the church. And I realize that that's not exactly like the most inspiring thing, like it just, oh, we're talking about definitions of words, maybe not the most exciting subject in the world to study, Not too many people I know of are searching YouTube for inspiring sermon series on ecclesiology. Like, that's just not happening very often. But the importance of this subject cannot be overstated. In many ways, I feel that as as I have been studying and preparing for this series, that this may very well be the most important series I have ever preached. Because as I lay out the biblical texts for us, I'm praying that God uses this 
information that comes from His Word to help set the trajectory for Pillar Fellowship in the years to come. And so as we begin this, let's just start with a simple question. Why ecclesiology? Why is this important for us? Well, issues, there's many things that touch on issues within ecclesiology. Issues, issues such as what qualifies an individual to be a pastor, an elder, or a deacon within the church. Even just the question, what is a church? It's ecclesiology. Is church membership biblical? What ordinances should we observe, and, and how should we observe them? Why do we do the things that we do when we gather together? We sing psalms, we, we read Scripture, we pray. Why do we do these things? These are all questions of ecclesiology, of what is the church, the study of the church, and how it is to operate. So the reality is, is every time we're gathering together, every time we interact with one another, we are living ecclesiology every day within our lives. So the question becomes, are we going to live good, biblical, God-directed ecclesiology, or are we going to live man or self-directed ecclesiology. Well, as we work to see Pillar Fellowship established as a biblical local church for God's glory here in southern Indiana, we want to be a biblical church, amen? Like that's, that's what we want to be. We want to, we want to be who and what God has called us to be. We don't just want to drift along and hope that we kind of figure things out as we go. Or worse, even be directed by the shifting sands of the culture around us. No, we want to step forward with confidence that we're doing exactly what God would have us to do based on what He has told us in His Word. That's who we want to be. That's what we want to do. And so if we're to see this church built on a solid foundation, we need to be clear on what we're trying to do. We need to sharpen our axe. So let us consider today the question, what is a church? But more broadly, what is the church? Now, scripture often speaks of the church in two different ways. The first is often called the visible or the, the uh, global church. Sorry, the first is often called the invisible church, the global church. And the second is often called the visible or a local church. One way that we can think about the universal church is we just kind of c- contrast the two ideas together this morning. The universal church is made up of everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and this is, we could consider this almost a, a definition of sorts for us. All who place their faith in Jesus Christ in this age are immediately placed by the Holy Spirit into one united spiritual body, the church of which Christ is the head. The church is a unique spiritual organism designed by Christ and made up of all born-again believers in this present age. We see clearly that what the church is. It is a unique spiritual organism. Well, how do you enter into this spiritual organism? How do you become a part of the church? It is only through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Only through a genuine repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing our own sinful condition, that there is no hope of salvation outside of Christ, and believing and turning in faith to Him and Him alone, His death, His, his life, His death, His burial, His resurrection from the dead is the only hope for our soul. That's the gospel. It's the only means of salvation, the only doorway into the universal church. When we come to faith in Christ, Scripture speaks of several things that happen instantaneously at that moment. Scripture speaks of being sealed with the Holy Spirit, being united to Christ by faith, adopted into the family of God, and and again, placed into this spiritual body, a spiritual family, the church. And it's a wonderful thing, and we praise God for all the things that are going on at the moment of conversion. I mean, consider... 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There's a special unity that we share by virtue of being this new creation in Christ, members of this one spiritual organism, this one spiritual body, the universal church. So, Scripture speaks of the church in this way. Again, that's not the only way Scripture speaks of, uses the word church. In fact, most of the time the word is used, it's used to speak of local churches, local expressions of the universal church. Now, Some might hear this and say, well, you know, hey, I'm saved. I've trusted in Christ. Isn't that enough? If I'm part of the universal church, why do I need to be part of a local church? What's what's the point of that? If we're all part of this one spiritual organism, this one spiritual body, why do I have to be a part of a local church? Well, the reality is that nearly every time the word church is used in the New Testament, almost always it refers to a local church. There are clearly places where the universal church is in view, particularly in the book of Ephesians. But nearly every other reference, especially in the rest of the epistles, whenever the word church is used, it so often is in reference to a local assembly. Here's just a few examples of that in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. That's a specific local assembly in Corinth. Likewise in Galatians, to the churches of Galatia. And in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, we see to the church of the Thessalonians. And so we see that so often as this word is used, it is used to speak of local church assemblies. And we could go on and f- see so many other examples But even as we consider that, what can we surmise from this? Scripture is written to local assemblies. It's written to local church bodies. What can we surmise from this information? First, we see that the entire New Testament loudly assumes the establishment and the continuity of local church realities. Okay, this isn't like, like, like a secret doctrine that you have to try to extrapolate from like obscure texts from 
you know, strange places. Like, that's not, that's not the case. Like, it's, it's everywhere throughout the New Testament that we see that local church realities, they're, they're there. It's everywhere. And second, the New Testament Scriptures really don't have a category for a believer who is not in regular fellowship with the local church. Except in, the, in, in case of like extreme circumstances like imprisonment or exile or even excommunication of things of that nature. But just everyday believers who have an opportunity to be a part of a local church, there's, there's, there isn't a category in Scripture for believers who are not part of a local church. We can understand that implicitly from texts such as this, but not only do we have that implicit argument, we, we also have texts that explicitly command us to gather as believers. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Oops. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Sorry, that should be up on the screen, and it's not. What the author of Hebrews is, is telling us within this text, you know, he, he first tells us what we have in Christ. Since we have this great high priest who has opened up this way, that opened up the curtain for us, that we have access to the Father that comes through His sacrifice of His flesh, He gives us what you, you, I cheesily call a lettuce salad. We have let us draw near to our marvelous God. Let us hold fast to our confession of hope. Why? Because He is faithful. And let us consider how we can stir up one another to love and good deeds. But then He goes on. How can we spur one another up? How, how can we do that? And He gives us, that's where verse 25 comes into play. It can only happen for actually seeing one another. This reality of stirring one another up can only happen if we're actually spending time with one another. It can only happen if we are joined together in a, in a covenant community together in a local church assembly. So therefore, we are commanded by this passage not to forsake the gathering together because if we do forsake that, if we do forsake holiness it will eventually lead us to forsaking the faith. And if we were to continue on reading in this passage, that's exactly what this passage goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 10. That if we fail to, con to continue on in stirring one another up to holiness, that we 
run the risk of enduring the judgment of God. And so we are commanded, gather together, stir one another up. Don't forsake assembling. Your, your spiritual life depends on this reality that you are gathering together in a local assembly with God's people. But now the question becomes this. Okay, we have this command. Don't neglect to meet together. Well, what counts as assembling? What actually constitutes a local church such that as we gather together with those people that that is sufficient? Is a small group of Bible study church? Hey, we're studying God's Word together. We're even possibly in an environment where we're challenging each other, stirring one another up. Does, does attending a small group Bible study count as church? If so, why? If not, why not? Does a Bible college chapel count as church? You know, I attended a small Bible college. We had required chapel attendance, and we had to be there three times a week. Is that church? I mean, we sang songs, we heard a sermon, and even at my school, every once in a while, we even observed the Lord's table from time to time. Were we a church? What I'd like to do today is suggest a definition for us that contains seven elements. These elements comprise what I believe to be the most basic and stripped-down definition of what a biblical local church is. And I think in, in many ways a church may be a church, even if one of these elements is lacking. I mean, even here we're, we are a church plant. There was a time when we were not fully fleshed out in all of these seven elements, and we've been growing in them as we've moved forward. And so there's not, it's not really a point of shame, but to be just as points to recognize, hey, if we're going to be a biblical church according to what God's Word has to say, well, these are the things that we should see being worked out within us. These are the things we should be striving for. If they're not realities now, they should become realities at some point in the future. Every church should be working towards seeing each of these seven elements functioning in biblically defined and healthy ways. So with that as the preface, the definition that I desire to break down and examine biblically is this, and I realize this is a lot of text on the screen, but a local church is a group of believers who share a commitment to the Word of God and each other, and they meet regularly to worship the triune God, to edify one another through the use of their spiritual gifts to be exhorted and equipped from the Word of God for ministry, and to celebrate, observe, and practice the ordinances and discipline under the guidance of duly appointed leaders. Again, within that definition, there are seven elements, and I believe that these are the essential elements that comprise a biblical church. Now, once again, I rec- we are a church in development here ourselves. By God's grace, we will grow in each of these areas. But let's, seek to, let's, let's break down this definition one element at a time and see what God's Word has to say on these things. First, we see that a, a local church is a group of believers who share a commitment to the Word of God and each other. 
Now, this may seem silly or trite, but this is simply a reality. You can't have a church without people, right? It, it takes people to have a church. You must have believers in Jesus Christ in order to have a church. So it is a group of believers. But it's not just a random group of believers. No, they share a commitment to two things, a commitment to the Word of God and a, and a commitment to each other. On a baseline, they must have a commitment to the Word of God. Of course, the Word of God is what reveals to us the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we can even be believers in the first place. And there are many so-called churches that exist in the world that are following either the whims of the culture or maybe the vision of an iconic leader or the dictates of a hierarchy imposed upon them. But a biblical church has a commitment to the Word of God. The Word of God is the focus. The Word of God is is what we look to for our teaching and for our guidance. And here at Pillar Fellowship, we make absolutely no apologies. We stand on the Word of God as the sole authority for faith and practice. And really the question that I have for anyone that would challenge that is, why would we stand on anything else? Why would we look to anything else other than the Word of God? I mean, look at what the Word of God has to say about itself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and the joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What else could be described that way? What else could we look to that, that can accomplish what the Word of God can accomplish? What else carries that authority? What else can shape our hearts and our minds? My words can't do that. My vision cannot do that. The culture cannot do that. It is only the Word of God and the Word of God alone that we can stand upon, that we, we can say, does these things. So we must stand upon the Word of God. We must have a commitment first and foremost to the Word of God through which we learn about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And really that ought to govern everything else that follows. Everything else in our definition that we're breaking down today flows from the Word of God. And it must. We are a group of believers who share a commitment to the Word of God, but also to each other. We are to share a commitment to each other. You know, if we were to look through the New Testament and see all of the one another passages that are there, the New Testament speaks so much about how we are to relate to one another, how to, we're to be engaged with one another. We're to love for, care for, uh, forgive, encourage, edify, exhort, admonish, and pray for one another. God didn't design the church to be a group of people who just show up, we sing some songs, we hear the sermon, and then we walk out the door never, never interacting with anybody. God didn't design the Christian life to be like that. 
God didn't design the church to function that way. We're to be a community that is committed to one another, that loves one another, that seeks to minister to one another. I mean, even as we consider that same Hebrews passage we were looking at earlier where it speaks of we're to consider how we can stir one another up. That's to flow out of hearts of love for one another. The Christian life cannot be lived in isolation, but we need each other. I'm supposed to have your back and you're supposed to have mine in our Christian walk. We're to be committed to one another. Well, we are a group of believers who share a commitment to the Word of God and each other, and we meet regularly in the rest of, of this, uh, as we break down these elements, they're elements of purpose for why it is that we're gathering together. Why do we meet regularly? First, we worship, we meet to worship the triune God. We meet to worship the triune God. The theological term for this concept is a doxological purpose. You think of the doxology, it's praising God. There's a doxological purpose. It's on our banners here. We exist to glorify God. That's, that's why we exist. That's, that's what we're here for. God has made us to worship Him, and we are at our best when we are living lives of worship to our God. You know, sometimes our church culture talks about the concept of worship as referring to the time of singing and music and kind of limits the concept of worship to that now. Now, singing and music, that is worship, right? We should be, as we singing songs of praise to our God and, and worshiping Him in song, that should be a time of worship. But if we consider what Scripture has to say about the concept of worship, it is really much more than that. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The way we live our lives, the way we use our our bodies in service to our God, just in everyday living, that is to be worship before our God. And yes, singing is part of that. Praising God through song is part of that. But it's more than that. Our worship should be found in, in our lives as we just go about our daily lives. Our work as we go about our, our daily work activities, it should be worship. Doing our chores, it should be done with an attitude of worship. Whatever we do, we should work heartily as to the Lord and not to man. Every aspect of our lives, we should be seeking to do it in service to our God. Now, we also specify that, that we worship the, the triune God, We meet to worship the triune God. There are many so-called churches who worship false ideas of God by denying the doctrine of the Trinity. And our argument is those are not true churches. They may call themselves a church, but they are not true churches. We must worship God as He has revealed Himself to be. But we gather for worship. But we also gather for another purpose. It is to edify one another. We have a commitment to one another, so we gather to edify one another. There's so much in this world right now that exists to tear each other down. We see this all over the place. We see it, uh, I don't know if you've ever met people like this or encountered them in your workplace or encountered them uh, in different places. 
they hardly have a positive thing to say. They're always trying to, they're, they're just negative people, always trying to tear each other down. Well, we're to be a people who exist to build each other up. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 11, speaks of this reality. Where it says, He gave the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That word building up is the word that is often translated as edification, to edify the body. That's what the word edify means. It means to build up. Think, think of like you're building a house and building a structure. That's the idea at work there. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's that word again, that it edifies itself up in love. We are to build up one another, and there's purpose. There's a purpose to this. It's so that we would be mature believers in Christ, so that we would be stable in our faith, not tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by the craftiness of man. We're to build each other up by speaking truth in love. And it has to be both, doesn't it? We have to have both truth and love together. Love without truth is really not love at all. You know, it's been said that, that love without truth is just sentimentality. It might feel good, it might support and affirm us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. It's been said that truth without love is hypocrisy or brutality and or it could end up becoming a weapon. It might give us true information, but it gives it in such a way that we can't really hear it because it's been weaponized. We're not to fall into either of those ditches. No, we need to speak the truth in love. And when every part of the church is working properly, the whole body joined and held together by, by every joint with which is it equipped. And when, it, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow. We grow together. We, we, we work together and we build each other up. We edify one another in love. But it takes us as a community with the same goals, the same purposes in mind, desiring to help one another and build each other up. And we live in a consumeristic culture that seeks to view everything as how can it benefit me? How can the church benefit me? How, I, I want to get something out of church today. Well, what can you give? How can you use your gifts, your skills, your abilities to build one another up in love? As we continue on, we find the fourth element that we meet to edify one another, but we also meet to be exhorted and equipped for ministry. 
Again, this occurs through building up one another in love, as that text just mentioned, but uh, the Scripture also places a special and specific emphasis on the role of the pastor in this task of exhorting and equipping for ministry. In that same Ephesians passage that we were just in, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers, and that word for shepherds is the word for pastor. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. You know, many people get the role of the pastor wrong. I think it's, it's, it's the pastor who's the one who does ministry. Right? That's his full-time job. He is a minister of the gospel, right? That, that's his job, right? They think of him as the one who does the ministry and everybody else receives it. But that's not what this text says. This text says the pastor equips the saints for the work of the ministry. That all of us as a a community, as as a church together, we're to be the ones that are supposed to be doing the ministry together. We're to be the ones that are engaged in ministry, not only with and to one another, but also seeking to engage the world around us and minister to the world around us, seeking to lead them to Christ. And it is my role to equip the saints for that task. Paul exhorted Timothy in his last scriptural letter that he ever wrote before his death, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you, speaking to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. As we gather together to be exhorted and equipped from the word of God, it is the leadership's responsibility to be exhorting, to preach the word. Not preaching my own ideas, I'm not not, not preaching TED Talks, self-help, pep talks, but preaching the Word of God. Reproving, rebuking, exhorting with patience and teaching. This is what is to be occurring when we gather together to hear the Word of God proclaimed. As we continue on, we find the fifth element. We also meet to celebrate, observe, and practice the ordinances. We observe the Lord's table here today. We believe that biblical churches will observe the ordinances. And not every church observes it the same way, and honestly, that's okay. But it ought to be observed. Christ has given commands for the observance of things like the Lord's table and for baptism. We believe in believers' baptism by immersion. We also believe that neither one of these ordinances saves anyone. They're designed to be a dramatic picture of the sacrifice of Christ and demonstrate the gospel in them. By God's grace, I do plan to do a a fuller sermon on uh, the Lord's table and, and baptism as we get to the end of this series, so I won't go into more detail now, but but this is to be a part of what a local church is to be doing. Christ has commanded these things, and so we do them out of obedience. Sixth, they practice church discipline when biblically needed. 
This is a criteria that is often uncomfortable for us to think about, but it is, a, it is in God's Word that a biblical church will practice church discipline as needed. The process of church discipline ought to follow the, the guidelines and the steps that are outlined out for us in Scripture. We find them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Matthew 18. And the goal of church discipline is always, always the reconciliation and the restoration of a wayward believer. And it is never to be thought of as punitive. Even when excommunication is the necessary result of the process, the goal is still to see repentance and restoration. And so often the church gets the concept of church discipline wrong. Either we don't practice it at all or it gets practiced in such a way that it, it gets carried over the top and it's practiced in an angry manner or a spiteful manner. But if we're guided by Scripture, we will practice church discipline, but we will do so in accordance with the biblical principles for the sake of seeing repentance and the restoration of a wayward believer. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the purpose of church discipline is to preserve the purity and the witness of the church. Internally, when public sin is, is allowed to continue without being addressed, it will tear the church apart. And externally, when sin is allowed to continue without being addressed, it destroys the testimony of the church. It brings shame and reproach upon the name of Christ. And so for those reasons, church discipline, when it is biblically needed, must be practiced by any biblical church. And finally, the fifth element that was within our definition, they do all of these things, they operate under the guidance of duly appointed leaders. This is another element of this definition that I'm not going to spend a significant amount of time on because in the weeks ahead, we're going to talk about the biblical role of elders and deacons. But a biblical church has godly leaders who have been duly appointed. And the method of that appointing is not specified in Scripture, but it is clear from Scripture that, that, that a church is not just a free-for-all when it comes to leadership. Right? It is not just whoever wants to, to do things. We find the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. They provide a list of qualifications that a leader of the church must meet if this church is to be a biblical and godly church. And so they were going to operate under the guidance of duly appointed leaders. So these are the seven elements of a biblical local church. A group of believers who share that commitment to the Word of God and each other. They meet regularly to worship the triune God, edify one another through the use of their spiritual gifts, be exhorted and equipped from the Word of God for ministry and celebrate, observe, and practice the ordinances and discipline under the guidance of duly appointed leaders. As we move forward with this series, we're going to expand upon a few of these points as we seek to establish biblical and godly church polity here with us, but I hope this lays a sufficient foundation for us as we seek to move forward as a biblical, godly church together. I read this week that Abraham Lincoln once said, if I am given six hours 
to chop down a tree, I shall spend the first four sharpening my axe. Well, I'm sure we can all agree that we are glad that I didn't spend four hours with this sermon today. But I do hope that as we have gone through this, that it does, it does help us sharpen us as we do take steps forward as pillar fellowship, that God would establish us as a biblical and godly church for His glory. And that from that foundation, God would use us to reach out to our community, that more would hear, believe, and follow after Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word today. Lord, ecclesiology, again, is, is, is um, sometimes it can be a, a subject that is studied academically. Well, Lord, we know we live out ecclesiology every time we gather. And your word is clear on what, how you would have your church be organized and, and built and established and I pray, Lord, that you would guide and direct us in the quest that as we desire to be a godly and a biblical church, we don't want to be a church of individuals that are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and every deceitfulness and cunningness of man. We want to be a church grounded, built upon a firm foundation. I pray, Lord, that you would use this time, this, this, these next several weeks to accomplish that. And I pray that we would glorify you as we seek to be a godly church. We pray all this in your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As we do seek to be a, a godly church for the glory of God, let's just stand and, and close with a doxology. <laughs>